follow the gulf Where is the something Where is the someone That tells me why I live and die Where do I go Follow the children Where do I go Follow their smiles Is there an answer In their sweet faces That tells me why I live and die Follow the wind song Follow the thunder Follow the neon in young lovers' eyes Down to the gutter Up to the glitter Into the city Where the truth lies Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, June 26th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jan Simpson. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, will be released in September of 2022 and can now be ordered on Amazon. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is a theater journalist who writes the blog Broadway and Me and hosts the Broadway radio podcasts Stagecraft and All the Drama. Hello, Jan. How are you? I'm fine and happy to be here with you guys. Well, Jan, uh, I had to have you on because you're you're now a uh, you're a big television and uh, YouTube star, aren't you? <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> So I'm talking about uh, Jan's appearance on theater, All the Moving Parts, uh, with Patrick Pacheco uh, and Adam Feldman, and who else? Helen Shaw of New York Magazine. You, you had a uh, was it a recap of the Tonys, or what was that? It was a little bit of a recap and a little bit of a look ahead preview. At, yeah, yeah, at not necessarily shows, but what the uh, Tonys and the ceremony what they imply or foretell about what's going to happen with the new Broadway season as we continue to try to come back from COVID. Yeah, so I have a link to the show in the uh, show notes if folks want to get over and check it out. I really enjoyed watching it. It was great to see the four of you who uh, I I just... uh, these are four voices that we I don't think we see enough of. So, uh, And also, Chan, you also had a new episode of Stagecraft. Uh, we had Mataharish Kars, uh, the playwright of, the, of Queen, which uh, we're going to be talking about the production of Queen, but the, uh, the Stagecraft interview was really wonderful as well. Oh, thank you. It's great to be back with uh, Stagecraft, which people may have forgotten is uh, a podcast that talks to playwrights um, and musical book writers. And we had to shut down because uh, they talk about the plays that are currently running in New York. And for a long time, we didn't have plays running, um, as everybody knows, in New York. So it was great to return uh, and, and to return with that play. 
All right, some housekeeping here. Uh, next Sunday is July 3rd, and I'm going to be out of town, so there's going to be no show next Sunday, July 3rd, but we will have something special in the uh, in the feed for you if you are somebody who likes to perhaps go to the beach and do some reading or sit on your your deck and do some reading or things like that. Jan and I are going to be talking about Jan's uh, annual summer reading list, so come back next Sunday. And uh, and Peter and Michael and I are going to return the following Sunday, I guess, the July 10th. Mm-hmm. So, first up in our review section, Jan, you got over to Lincoln Center's Mitzi Newhouse Theater to see Epiphany. So, tell us about this. I'm going to just start right out and say this is a play that I really liked a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's by a playwright named Brian Watkins, who is new to me. Uh it's inspired by the classic James Joyce uh, short story, The Dead. And like that short story, it takes place at, at a dinner that's being hosted by uh, a woman in her 60s. And she's invited uh, a group of people to help her celebrate the epiphany. And in this new play that Brian Watkins has done, uh, the, the guests who have arrived have no idea what the epiphany is. Uh, they, mm. they mainly come because she has a very famous nephew. He's a famous writer and pundit on TV and things like that named Gabriel. And they want to meet Gabriel. And none of them really know one another. Well, you know, sometimes you go one of those parties and you know the host, but you don't really know the other people. And so they're all sort of making small talk, waiting for Gabriel to arrive. And then it's uh, they find out that Gabriel's not coming. He uh, sent instead the woman that he's been seeing. And now they have to try to have this dinner celebrate epiphany that they're not quite sure what it is. And that's the play. Now this sounds like what? (laughs) Not very interesting. (laughs) I don't want to sit there watching a bunch of people have dinner, but um, (laughs) the beginning of it is very funny. Uh, The woman is Mary uh, Louise Burke. Uh, who I thought he had written this part for her. It fits her so perfectly, like a glove. And But no, the play was actually produced originally in Ireland by the uh, Druid Theatre. Uh, but it's very funny. She's very funny. The interactions with the guests are very funny. But as the evening goes on, as it does in the short story, it becomes more metaphysical, more philosophical. Uh, And in this play, I think what Watkins is looking at is uh, how do we have rites and rituals today that bring us together in the absence of the traditional things that brought us together, namely religion. And all of the people at the play represent different parts of, of society, education, law, psychiatry, the arts. And I think what Watkins is saying is that there is still a spiritual gap that 
we're we're struggling to fill. And I was just so moved and so uh, taken um, uh, by this play. If you are a, a person who's really interested in serious uh, drama and uh, and 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 also like to laugh, I I really would encourage you to to go see this one. Okay, so that is Epiphany at Lincoln Center Theater, the new house. Uh, it's uh, running through July 24th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter's going to see it uh, right after we, we record today, so we'll talk about it in two weeks. And also, it's on my schedule. I'm not sure when, and I guess, Michael, are you planning to see this? You know, I, I hadn't scheduled it, but now I might. <laughs> yeah, I know. Very exciting. Okay, so uh, that's Epiphany. Um, Peter and Jan both got over to Playwrights Horizons to see Corsicana. Uh, so Peter, why don't you get us started on this? Well, um, the first thing I want to say is that what we have here is a lame duck playbill. What do I mean by (laughs) that? Well, you, if you look at Deirdre O'Connell's bio, it Uh, says Broadway, Dana H, Tony Award nomination. And of course, um, she won the Tony Award um, a few weeks back. <laughs> and so uh, I'm not saying that they should s- start the presses, but nevertheless, um, it's sort of fun to see uh, that stage uh, before the stage that actually happened. And speaking of the stage, that brings us to what's going on on stage of Playwrights Horizons. Um, I don't know if this is an important play, but I do think it has an important experience uh, to it. And what I mean is, we're talking about um, a family where there's a um, a 34-year-old woman who um, has Down syndrome. And this is played by Jamie Brewer, who uh, many of us got to know some years back um, for Amy and the Orphans, uh, for which she was very much acclaimed. Uh, she got a Drama Desk Award. She got a Theater World Award. And um, she's really terrific. And here she has much more to do. She must carry this play, really. And I think the point of the play is that we underestimate people with Down syndrome because what's wonderful is to watch everybody treat her in a completely normal fashion. There's no condescension. There's no, uh, do you understand what I'm telling you type stuff? None of that at all. It's just very matter of fact. And Jamie Brewer is certainly up to the task. Um, But that's what's really great about it, to watch people in this circumstance. I'm very surprised, uh, given the fact that it's called Corsicana, and it's about a town in uh, Texas called Corsicana, that nobody has a Southern accent. Nobody. Um, it didn't seem to me anyway. Um, uh, I thought that was uh, pretty weird. There's um, a black guy who's uh, dragged into the action as well. What's surprising to me is that he seems as laconic as one of these Yankee people you see in Vermont. Um, yep. You know, that type of thing. He, uh, very, very um, circumspect holds his cards very close to the vest. And um it's very hard to get a meaning on what's going on with him. It's also hard to understand why people push the walls of the set every now and then back and forth. I I don't know what that was about. I have to say, um, but what's really nice too, is that uh, we hear that music is the universal language. Music brings people together. And that's um, certainly happens in this play that music does bring people together. Anyway, um, it's long, um, probably two and a half hours or more. And I think that um, Will Arbery has overwritten it. 
And uh, because it's so long and because it does meander, it's very hard to hold on to what it is. But I'm still very glad to have been there to really see Jamie Brewer shine and to remind us that whatever conceptions we may have about Down syndrome may be up for a reexamination. Okay, Jan, what did you think about this? I really didn't connect to this play at all. Um, I, when I was making notes for myself, I, I said I felt as though I was looking. Well, let me start by saying Will Arbery uh, says in the uh, playbill and has said in some other reviews that he wrote this play because he wanted to pay tribute to his sister who has Down uh, syndrome. And so this is uh, the play is about the relationship between a brother and sister. Their mother has recently died. They're both grieving and they have their mother's best friend played by Deirdre O'Connell comes uh, over a a lot to see that they're okay, to bring groceries, uh, to just be a a, a substitute maternal presence uh, for them. I appreciate that that Arbery wanted to celebrate his sister in the way that Peter said, but I felt as though I was looking through somebody else's family photo album, and we were spending a lot of time just going through pictures that I didn't know who the people were. And I didn't connect to the characters from the moment I came into the theater and I saw this very strange set where there are two couches, one facing the audience, one uh, facing the backstage. The stage revolves at different uh, uh, times. The couches are identical. I have no idea why there were two couches no idea why they were revolving. They didn't seem to revolve to suggest different uh, locations because the brother and sister plopped down on the couch regardless. Uh, As Peter said, the actors have to move parts of the set periodically, including a huge metal awning that actually makes uh, it difficult sometimes for the sound to transfer out to uh, the audience. And then this fourth character who's played as an outside, who is an outsider artist. And we're meant to, to think that he might be autistic or maybe depressed. The connections I think are very meaningful for Arbery they were not for me. And unfortunately, they were not for a large part of the audience at the attendance, I perf- uh, uh, you know, a uh, performance I attended because uh, there is an intermission and a lot of people took advantage of that intermission. <laughs> okay. So that is uh, Corsicana at Playwrights. Uh, that's playing through July 10th. Uh, and we'll have a link to link to that in the show notes. And we should note we should note that it is directed by Sam Gold. Mm. And for frequent theater goers, that will that will <laughs> yes, that will have a, a resonance, a meaning. 
it, and this was directed by Sam Gold at his most Sam Gold. Goldish. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like your Something phrasing. Sort of goldish. <laughs> I like your phrasing, Janet. People took advantage of the intermission. <laughs> mm, yeah, we call that they they lended. <laughs> they lended. They lended. Hey, they were yeah. they were doing the Lindy. Right. They did. They did the Lindy at intermission. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, lasted nine minutes at one show this week, and I'm not going to say what it is. But anyway, nine minutes. Okay. Um, so, I, I want you, I want you to email me with that. I want to know what that show is. Okay. <laughs> Thank goodness you get aisle seats. Well, in fact, she had a feeling she was going to leave, so she said, "Please put me on the aisle tonight." So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I uh, I don't recall what show it was, but I, I sat next to Linda oh. uh, um, uh, last month or something like that. Uh, but we were on the inside, and thank goodness she liked the show. Yes, it was Hangman. Stay- Hangman it, was. it was Hangman. Yeah, right, okay, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I can recall another time she was next to you and she left. But I'm not going to say what that show was either. <laughs> A long time ago. Anyway. Okay. Memories. <laughs> Light the colors, corners of my mind. Co- corners of my corners. mind, is that yeah, corners, yeah, that's yeah. right. All right. Talk about memories and lighting the corners of my mind. Michael, you got over to Harvey Evans Memorial. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us about this uh, this wonderful career and this wonderful person. Oh, it was really, it was a really beautiful event that was put together by this um organization called Dancers Over 40, with which Harvey had been involved, uh, at least at one point. And, uh, you know, I had been thinking about trying to get together some kind of memorial for Harvey. I'd spoken with his family, and uh, they they ideally wanted a, a, some kind of a situation like the usual Broadway memorial that we see where people can come f- for free and, uh, you know, to a, a memorial event. But it was uh, I, I had trouble trying to arrange that, and uh, and so this happened instead. Also, we were thinking of doing it later um, in maybe in the in the summer or in the fall, uh, but. Uh, in, in terms of availability of, of finding a space and things like that. But anyway, um, I, I have not been able to plan that, but this happened instead. And at first I, um, I was a little wary of it because they were doing it at the triad as a paid admission kind of a thing. Uh, and the triad is very small and obviously not that many people would be able to go. Uh, and there were, there were pluses and minuses to it, but it, it turned out to be absolutely wonderful. Uh, and the, the intimacy of the triad actually added greatly to it. Uh, it. It was filled with Harvey's friends and colleagues, and uh, it just it was a real love fest. There was a lot of wonderful video of him and photos of him projected on a screen on the stage uh, beforehand and uh, and during the show as part of the show. And the performer, people who performed and or spoke. Um, for Harvey uh, were Jim Proshu, Anita Gillette, Kurt Peterson, Marianne Tatum, 
Pennyworth and Tony Yazbek. Uh, Joel Gray was to have been there, but he couldn't make it for some reason, but he sent a wonderful letter uh, that, that someone read. I think it was John Safakis who put together the show. Read, read, I think he was the one who read that reminiscence. And Fred Barton was the musical accompanist. And um, it, it just really, the, the memories, the stories were, were overflowing. And I, I, I really, I really uh, um, almost cried once mm. or twice. And I, I have to say that everyone, everyone who spoke and performed was, was great. But Tony Yazbek just really brought me to tears because I know he um, and Harvey really loved each other. Apparently they met when they were both swings uh, I think swing is was w- what their designation was on the uh, Oklahoma with Patrick Wilson. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know, and uh, and it was it was quite uh, a, a, a thing for the both of them because they were both swings. But Harvey was a, a veteran Broadway performer since 1955, and Tony was this kid, you know, just mm-hmm. and I think maybe that was his first. Broadway experience so but they bonded and it was it was just um his his what he had to say about Harvey was was just beautiful and 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 he sang beautifully as well so I I really really have to thank Dances Over 40 and John Safakis for putting this together um oh and uh, I almost forgot it was hosted and brilliantly so by Leroy Reams who was a very very close friend of Harvey and and they tended to um alternate roles uh for example Leroy created the role of Dwayne in applause on Broadway. And then Harvey uh, did it, uh, the TV version. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if he, I, I think they did it on stage in London as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they had a kind of symbiosis throughout their career. And so Leroy was absolutely the perfect person to host this show. And I'm so glad I went and I'm so glad they did it. That's wonderful. Uh, Michael, do you know if anybody uh, recorded any of it? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, they, they even announced that they were recording it, and, and I'm sure that'll be available through Dancers Over 40. I'll try to um, look that up uh, and uh, give information next time we speak. Great. Thank you. So uh, I got down to the public theater to see uh, the production of Fat Ham, uh, and... Um, I have to say that I, I have to concur with most of what everything everybody else is saying that, that this is just really, really wonderful uh, production. It was very entertaining, uh, existed on so many different levels. If you didn't know Hamlet, uh, as, uh, as some other folks in the audience did not know Hamlet all that well, uh, they still very much enjoyed the show and if you did know hamlet then it it, the overlay of this play on top of hamlet made it so entertaining on on all different types of levels um just i i think that this is going to be something that i I hope that they get another run so that they get remembered next year during the award season because it's so far away um there is uh, rumors that it, it it might move uh, to a different uh, to a different venue. I, I don't, I'm not quite sure. It, it it's quite a Broadway show, uh, not 
because of the quality, but because of just the feeling of the show. I, I, I'm not sure it translates to a, a very large stage and a large uh, audience. Uh, Peter, you saw it. Did you, did you think that this thing would transfer? Yeah, I think it's entirely possible. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't think it'd be all that expensive to run, and uh, certainly with the Pulitzer designation. I w- I'd be very surprised if it uh, transferred to an off-Broadway house. So we'll see what happens. But um, I, I wonder when you're talking about the cost of it, uh, that the, the, they do play a lot of popular music in it. And I think that that might be the, <laughs> the largest cost was to licensing that funny. music. Yeah. Licensing that music. Uh, and uh, Jan, you also saw it. What do you think that uh, – do you have thoughts about it or uh, do you think that it, it could be a transfer? I'm in an, in the minority here. I didn't love the show. Okay. I um, I thought it was entertaining. I liked the idea of it. The idea that the characters, particularly because they are uh, in this production, uh, black people, that they were not going to go down the line of black pain you know, black despair at the end. And that's part of uh, uh, the play. They just declare, we're not going to do that. And, and, and I like that, but um, I don't know. I, I, I thought it was a strange Pulitzer winner. Um, mm. And I saw a lot of similarities between it and a strange loop. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, I mean, obviously, A Strange Loop is a musical, so it has that going. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't know where it would transfer. I'm not sure it would bring in large Broadway audiences. It's not the kind of show that I would see, uh, uh, you know, at New World stages. It just makes me wish that we had more uh, off-Broadway venues that mm. were commercial venues. I mean, we mm-hmm. have off-Broadway places where um, uh, nonprofits are presenting plays, but we, we don't have a lot of them for, for, for that. And if there were that kind of place, I think that's where that ham would go. Mm, we should probably mention that as we speak, uh, one can go to the Park Avenue Armory uh, to see a production of Hamlet that has come over from London, uh, di- uh, directed by Robert Ick- Icke, Icke, uh, with Alex Lothar in the title role. Uh, so one could do both, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Go from one to the other and make a day of it, or <laughs> maybe space. Maybe of Hamlet. That's <laughs> what I was going to say. I, und- I understand it's going to be more than the day, but it'd be long days journey tonight because I understand that's three and a half hours. I'm going Tuesday to that Hamlet that you're yeah. speaking of. So. Um, and yeah. uh, with given Park Avenue Armory's size, uh, we could actually put both of those uh, yes. fat, fat ham and Hamlet <laughs> in there and run it. And uh, the uh, fat ham down at the public is runs ninety five minutes, no intermission. So oh. fat ham could actually be just uh, part of the intermission break of the Hamlet run. <laughs> So. Particularly if they serve the barbecue that yeah. they have oh, yeah. in Sam. Do you see yeah. these great ideas we're coming up with? Why don't, pe- why don't people listen to us? <laughs> Roger Berlin, the best way to make a million dollars in Broadway is start with yeah. $10 million. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, 
I, I sort of had a, a a feeling of the minutes in it because the the first eighty nine minutes were really <laughs> interesting, and the ntieth minute I said WTF. <laughs> I was like, okay, you know, I I understood that journey of that character. Uh, and it sort of, you know, brought in a deus ex machina element to it at the very mm-hmm. end of Fat Ham. I'm, I'm being mm-hmm. specifically obsequious because I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I was like, what, what did that add to the show other than five minutes? And and it was fun, but I, 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 I didn't get the, the, uh, the theatrical need or the, the literary need for that final scene. But it was interesting, and uh, it was like, uh, could have been taken, yes. I'm so theater-centric that when I hear WTF, I think of Williamstown Theater Festival. Yes, (laughs) yes, exactly. And that's it. Yeah, maybe Fat Ham could go to Williamstown. So that is Fat Ham at the Public. Uh, is running through July 17th. It was a little bit extended, so you can check that out. Hard to get ticket. Hard to get Mm -hmm. ticket right now. And I'll dig up that information on the Hamlet at the Park Avenue Armory and throw that throw that in the show notes as well. So, uh, Peter and Jan, you saw Queen, which is a production of the National Asian American Theater Company at ART New York. Uh, so, Jan, why don't you get started with Queen? Uh, Queen is a play by uh, the playwright uh, Madri uh, Shaker, and it deals with two young PhD uh, students. They're both women. They're scientists. They are working on the question of whether uh, pesticides, and in particular pesticides by the company Monsanto, uh, has led to the seeming extinction of uh, the honeybee. Um, this is uh, the uh, disappearance of the honeybee is a real life problem. And uh, these two scientists in the play have uh, come up with uh, an answer. They've written it in a paper. The paper is going to be published in the very prestigious real life journal nature. They're uh, a mentor, the professor who's overseeing their work is uh, uh, going to be honored and may even get enough money to uh, open his own independent lab. Both of them, the two young women who have worked on this project, are poised to uh, go off into great careers because people at other universities and uh, think tanks will want to uh, have them work with them. And then one of them does some final calculations and finds that these final numbers do not confirm their findings. Mm. And so the question becomes, what do they do? Do they withdraw the paper? Uh, Do they just pretend that they didn't do the final calculations. Uh, The professor has some uh, definite ideas about what they should do. The debate between the two of them threatens their, their, not only their partnership, their professional partnership, but their friendship. One of the women is uh, an Indian woman 
from uh, an affluent family in India who has come to the U.S. to uh, pursue her career. The other is uh, a white woman from a working class family, perhaps the first in her family uh, to go to, to college. She has no uh, support, financial support to fall back on. And, and so each of them has a different kind of investment uh, in this project. And the back and forth uh, uh, surrounding what they will do is the narrative uh, of the, the, the play. Um, I obviously liked it because I uh, did do the interview um, with uh, Shaker uh, uh, for Stagecraft. Another thing that's particularly important about this production is it's the inaugural production of the NATCO Partnership Project. And this is a new initiative uh, that has been created to promote the work of Asian American theater artists. And what they do is they guarantee uh, at least two productions for uh, a work and in regional theaters around the country uh, sign on and say, yes, we will do this uh uh, play. So this play was done at the Hartford stage and now it's uh, at ART, sadly only through this weekend. Um, it is, uh, I thought, just a, a really enjoyable, thought-provoking uh, uh, play. And she's uh, just a very smart uh, a writer. She has ideas that she wants to present, but she knows she needs to entertain too. And so the, the play is also uh, uh, entertaining as well. Okay. Peter, what did you think about Queen? Yeah, I liked it. What, what was interesting to me was the fact that um, this, uh, oh, well, let me say this. It was very smart of them to start off with uh, two of them uh, drinking together and uh, enjoying each other. So we, we see the bonds of the friendship, which is a very important thing here because they, the question becomes, uh, are you a real friend if you uh, don't agree with your colleague when the time comes, uh, when push comes to shove, when you really do find out that you're at odds at what should happen here? Mm -hmm. So I think that was really, really terrific. But what I liked about this play was the fact that Unfortunately, the woman um, who is from a far lesser impressive background and really feels this is her one shot at any type of uh, conquest and um, uh, moving ahead and all that goes with that, at the end of the play finds out she can still be useful, but in a very different capacity. And I like that very much, that if you don't succeed in one, look, let me put it this way, um, she hits the target but she doesn't hit the bullseye. She expected to hit the bullseye. She wanted mm. to hit the bullseye. It meant so much to her, but she finds out that indeed hitting the target is valid as well. It's not just a case of you have to really <laughs> do everything perfectly. Indeed, there are ways that you can help a situation that may not occur to you when you're really looking for the grand prize. 
And that's what I really liked about this play. Very, very well uh, acted. And you know what's kind of funny? Um, <laughs> the set, um, it's not much more than what looks at first glance to be uh, conference tables. But, you know, they're put together in that hexagon type shape mm-hmm. that that, <laughs> that bees um, <laughs> deal with in their hives. So uh, I... I imagine that was uh, intentional, mm-hmm. but uh, it occurred to be halfway through the play. Oh, wait a minute. That's what that is. So um, you, you may get a better view of that if you're in uh, it, it's stadium seating, not there are so many rows, but if, if you're in the top row, you might get that better and quicker than I did. So, uh, but a, a very worthwhile experience and a, a quiet play, but it does pack a punch. Okay. So uh, that is Queen over at ART New York. Um, and as Jan mentioned, it's playing through July 1st, so you only have a few days left to uh, see it. I've also included uh, the link to Jan's interview with um, Madhuri Shakar uh, from Stagecraft in the show notes as well. Michael, you go over to the Players Theater to see here there be dragons. <laughs> so tell us about this new musical. Well, first of all, to the title, I'm so old that, um, I mean, they used to teach this in school. I wonder if they even still bother. Uh, do all of you uh, folks know what that refers to, that title? No. no. Oh, really? Uh, well, uh, apparently, hundreds of years ago, before the world was completely explored, map makers uh, would draw up their maps. And uh, for places that hadn't been explored yet, they would literally write on the map, here there be dragons. Huh. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, how they knew there were dragons there if it hadn't been explored <laughs> is, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's what that refers to. But uh, in this case of, of this show, it's also a, a, a double meaning because what it really refers to is people who play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, yeah. And this is uh, a really... Um, this musical has a lot of potential. I think it's about a bunch of college kids who play the game and the game is sort of informed by their actual lives, what's going on in their actual lives and vice versa. It's sort of a back and forth kind of a thing. Um, One fellow uh, proposes to a, a woman, a young woman, and she declines. And so that's something that's happening in their real lives. And then another uh, one of the guys is in love with another one of the girls uh, and we're not sure what's going to happen with that. Uh, and then there's also a little bit of uh, a lesbian relationship in the in the play, in the musical. Uh, so it's a really good premise. And I would say uh, what I thought of here um, was that famous uh, remark that Stephen Sondheim uh, told us about when he was very, very young and he wrote uh, a musical and handed it to Oscar Hammerstein to see what he thought. Um, and Hammerstein, you know, read it. I mean, Sondheim was like 15 at the time. Right. Uh, I, and, and Hammerstein read it and said, well, do you want me to be really honest? And and Sondheim said, oh, abs- yes, absolutely. Yeah. And he said, well, it's, it's terrible. He, he's, you know, <laughs> uh, and Sondheim like started to like, sort of his uh, his eyes started to well up with tears and mm-hmm. and and Hammerstein said I said it was terrible I did not say it it was untalented and then he went on to give uh, Sondheim a master class in musical theater craft uh well this this musical is not terrible by any means but uh it could use a lot of work uh, the production I'm sorry to say was 
kind of problematic. It was at the Players Theater. Uh, I'm sure they didn't have a lot of rehearsal. The lighting was pretty bad. Uh, the sound, unfortunately, was really not very good. They, they had a, a five-piece uh, band um, uh, but it was situated right in front of the stage of that tiny theater. Uh, and it was, you know, drums and guitar and, and mostly electronic instruments. Uh, so uh, even though the cast had, I guess they had head mics, I didn't see them, but they must have. Uh, it was very difficult to hear them sometimes. Uh, so all of that really worked against it. And then as far as the writing, I thought the music by Theo Terrace was really quite good, um, much better than you would expect to hear in some off off Broadway musical that you'd never heard of. Uh, and uh, the book and lyrics by Chase O'Neill, I would say the book was was really very good. The lyrics uh, also were excellent for the most part, except for. Um, some misaccents. Uh, I, I I don't think there were any or many false rhymes. I'm happy to report to Peter. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so that really impressed me. But instead, there were misaccents. For example, there was a there's this one song uh, that came towards the end called "Faded to the Background," and uh, that one of the young women sang. And the refrain, the repeated chorus uh, or refrain, I guess, was something like. I fade to the background mm -hmm. and I thought, Oh, every time she sang it, it was like nails on a chalkboard mm -hmm. to me. And I thought, well, you know, that could have been so easily changed to I fade into the background uh, because also um, if fade to the background is not correct, right? It's fade into the background. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were two problems there. Anyway, it was, it was things like that, that I think really, um, with just a little bit of work, it could be made much better, but it was a very compelling story with a, uh, and really just very well put together, directed and developed by, is the credit, directed and developed by Austin Harlson, H-A-R-L-E-S-O-N, and with a really great cast. I went um, partly because there was one actor uh, in it who I uh, had previously known and liked very, very much uh, Spencer Gonzalez. And he was great in this as well, although he didn't have as much to do uh, as some of the others. He played the the fellow who's um, in love with one of the young women, and we don't know what's going to happen with that. Uh, so I won't tell you. But <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, then also, everyone was really great. Uh, Regina Famatigan, Reagan Teller, Bailey Lee, Kaylee Delory, Stephen Martella, and Cassidy Sledge. Um, and then there was, I actually, I saw uh, one substitution in one of the major roles, Emily Matthews uh, played the role of Ronnie. Uh, so, and she was terrific. She was completely off book and completely comfortable and knew all of her lines and her lyrics and had a really beautiful voice. So she was great. But, uh, but at the, the, the standout, uh, one of the standouts for me was this fellow named Christopher Oram, who played, I guess, I guess the male lead of Lucas. Uh, and he is really uh, just at the start of his career. It says, uh, budding young artist from the rolling Red Rock Hills of Southern Utah. And he only moved to New York uh, in, well, it says in 2022. So so just very, very recently. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you're going to be, he's, he's already played uh, the lead in Newsies 
and um, and he played hero in Forum uh, in various places um, outside of New York. And I think you're going to be hearing from him more. But I also think I ho- and hope you'll be hearing from this musical again. I do hope they work on it a little more, and I hope they get to uh, perform it in a place and in a situation where they have more rehearsals and maybe better tech uh, tech support uh, to put across the, the show, because I, I think it really has a lot going for it. Okay. So that is here. There be dragons. I learned something new this morning about maps. <laughs> Very nice. I guess because uh, here there be dragons, because if you, if people sail beyond that point on the map and they never come back, they must, think they're killed by dragons or i guess they just didn't want them you know they wanted them to be aware that this was unexplored territory and Mm. anything could happen (laughs) that's true (laughs) all right so that is uh through july 17th at the players theater peter and jan got over to the brishnikov art center to see the orchard so uh this is a new version of the cherry orchard that stars jessica hecht and mikhail brishnikov that is you don't very often get to say that. <laughs> Those two. I was <laughs> wondering if The Orchard was maybe a sequel to Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that whole thing yeah, with the apple the, orchard? The apple, <laughs> the trees climbing the trees. So, uh, Jan, why don't you get us started on this? Well, Jan kind of got over to the Bruce Art <laughs> Center. Oh, that's be- true. <laughs> because yeah. this show is being presented both in person and online and i opted for online and uh they are i gather two slightly different versions um of uh, of the play the online performance attempts to function somewhat like a video game uh you can uh click on certain doors that open Hmm. you can change the camera uh angles so that when one actor is speaking you can zoom in on that person's face or you can pull back out um that sounds great It does. As far as it goes. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it does. Uh, Except that the technology hasn't been totally worked out. (laughs) And so uh, often when I was on the close up of an actor, I would get a message saying, please return to the main feed. Um, So you kind of could play with it, but not quite. In the online version, uh, this is uh, Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard, as as, uh, uh, James said. So I'm not going to go through the plot of The Cherry Orchard. Anybody listening here has at some point seen The Cherry Orchard. Um, But in the online version, uh, Barishnikov plays two characters. As I understand it in, in the real life version, he plays the uh, character, uh, the servant, the elderly servant Fears. And uh, the character of Fears has been built up because it's Barishnikov playing it <laughs> and it's at the Barishnikov Center. So uh, Fares is more present than he has been in most of the productions. Um, I've seen, but online, Barishnikov also plays Chekhov. 
And uh, so Chekhov does some some uh, annotating uh, of his play. But the the back and forth of it, uh, the video game back and forth of it, it is so um, janky in a way. I don't know how to, that one of the people in the chat room just at some point typed in, just do the damn play. And <laughs> I think that sort of summed up maybe the online uh, experience. They also didn't, it's directed by uh, a Ukrainian uh, director and conceived by uh, this director, Igor uh, Goldyak, I think is how you pronounce his name. Um, And not all of it has been thought through so that in the final scene, the most poignant scene when the the family has to move out of its home because uh, the property has been sold. Um, uh, the lack of scenery, because this is a, is a very abstract kind of uh, production, uh, they acknowledge that this might be problematic. So on screen, there were captions saying things like, there would be no pictures on the wall. (laughs) And of course, there's been no wall. So (laughs) it's, it's, uh, I'm really interested in what Peter's experience of actually being there was. Maybe I should have just gotten my butt up and <laughs> gone to the theater. So, Peter, should I have? Um, and, and all the rest of you, too. No. <laughs> don't, don't leave home without the rest of you. Um, uh, I, my feelings were very similar to yours, so I'm not sure that you missed uh, very much at all by not being there, though, of course, uh, the live experience is always great fun. The productions... Uh, I'm sorry, the projections is what I meant to say. The projections are uh, really very effective. And I would imagine those would seem to be uh, very much diminished um, on the home screen. Mm -hmm. But um, what bothered me was the dystopian set. Um, And I would put it that way, uh, rather than abstract dystopian. Um, And there was this very strange machine that was on stage that um, had lights on it. And the lights went here, there and everywhere. And um, so I, I I would really think that this doesn't serve the play well because you, you really do want to see what they have and what they're going to be missing mm-hmm. when indeed um, they have to leave town. So so that was a problem for me. Jessica Hecht, very good. Boration Coffee is very good. Mark Nelson, one of my favorite uh, actors. I first discovered him back in 1978 when he was doing um, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been in a small venue, I think, on 18th Street. So, um, And he really impressed me. And it's been a while since I've seen him, so it was really great to catch up with him. And um, uh, he was he was really quite good, too. They were all good. They were all good. Um, but, you know, uh, that statement about if you want to do it, do the damn play um, is, is something that I think really does hold water. Uh, if I didn't know the cherry orchard, I might've been lost a few times. So, uh, so I'm, I'm glad I went, but I wouldn't mind something more traditional. I guess that's not going to surprise too many people who uh, listen to these podcasts um, week after week. What about the robot dog? I didn't see the robot dog in the um, uh, uh, online, but I keep reading that the robot dog was really cute and kind of stole the show. Um, what do you mean? They didn't show it at all? 
I didn't see the robot. I saw maybe once something kind of move, hop across the stage or something. And I thought, oh, there's the robot dog. And maybe it was my fault because I didn't click on the robot dog. But at any rate, I didn't see him much. Yeah, it's 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 quite an effect um, uh, to see this thing uh, run around the stage. But I, I have to admit, though, I found it a little creepy. Um, <laughs> rather, <laughs> rather, I'm, I'm scared. Maybe too strong a word, but it's it's in that ballpark. I mean, when it came on, geez, what is that? You know, I mean, maybe I've just seen too many rats run across the street in New York City, and that was uh, the problem. <laughs> I think that might be it, really. And that's what it reminded me of, frankly, because all of a sudden Zoom would come on, and you know, oh my God, you know, so <laughs> so technically great, but it, it did unnerve me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that is running, let's see, through July 3rd, so only a couple of days left, less than a week. Um, <clears throat> and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, you saw a production of St. Joan uh, by Shakespeare Downtown. While uh, the production is no longer running, we wanted to talk a little bit about Shakespeare Downtown in this production. So tell us about it. Yes, I do want to talk about this um, for more reasons than one. <clears throat> It was a Sunday night. I didn't have anything to do. And uh, here was this company doing a free performance of St. Joan. And uh, they were doing it outdoors. They were doing it at um, Castle Clinton, which meant nothing to me. I didn't know what that was. Um, But um, in an endeavor to, um, in my great quest to lose weight, I've been walking a great deal. And uh, okay, so I'm going to walk from my apartment midtown all the way down to uh, Battery Park and see what I can see. And frankly, I wasn't that enthusiastic uh, from the vantage point of outdoor performances because there is a troupe um, in New York that goes from park to park doing Shakespeare usually. They're about to do Cymbeline, in fact, or they are doing it. But anyway, um, you go there and you sit on the ground and um, they don't have any amplification. So it's sort of hard to hear from now. If they're turning away from you, you don't know what they're saying. So I expected that type of situation. No, no, this is a much classier situation, much classier. So um, Castle Clinton is um, actually a very, um, well, this is sort of theater in the round, in the sense that it is a round building, but they have folding chairs for you. There you are. You're not going to have to sit on the ground and they have amplification, which is really, you know, I mean, after all, think of the Delacorte. Uh, that's outdoors and they have amplification. Of course, it's a very big um, arena. But my point is, imagine if the Delacorte didn't have um, any amplification. Well, people say all the time, oh, well, you know, I mean, it sounds like the sound is homogenized and it's coming from one place. This other troupe that I'm not naming um, really proves that you do need amplification. So I really, my hat is off to them for spending the money for amplification, given the fact that they're relying on donations, which, of course, at the end of the show, I gave very, very gladly because it was a terrific production directed by Jeffrey Horn. Uh, he and uh, Billy Anderson, Billy's a woman, um, they founded this company, Shakespeare Downtown. And I really do believe that they are people worth watching. Billy Anderson took on the role of St. Joan. Now, my b- buddy Holly Hill wrote a book talking about the fact that St. Joan is really the Hamlet for women, that this is such a difficult role that um, so many actresses have tried it and have been defeated. It wasn't that long ago we saw it on Broadway, Mm -hmm. the Friedman Theater, and a lot of people did not like 
the actress playing St. Joan didn't like her at all, even though she had a wonderful reputation and had done very well in previous roles. So this is one that can defeat. And Billy Anderson was superb. And why was she superb? Because she was steely. She was centered. No matter what was going on around her, she knew who she was. She wasn't going to compromise. She wasn't obnoxious either. That's a problem that Joan could be. You know, she comes on and she really thinks she has all the answers. But here she was very content to be very, very quiet in the way that she was delivering her, um, which is another reason why you need to have amplification. Quiet, uh, almost matter of fact, but that quiet confidence played so much better than strident confidence that so many actresses have done. You know, listen to me, you know, uh, you don't know what you're doing. Well, you know, when somebody does that, you want that person taken down a peg or two. Here, you were really rooting for her. It was really so effective in the final scene where they say to her, okay, you know, we'll let you off the hook. All you have to do is sign this paper. And okay, so um, she'll sign the paper so she won't be burned at the stake. But then she finds out what, what they don't tell her is that, okay, but now you have to be imprisoned for life. Well, then burn me at the stake. That's a very, very powerful scene. And indeed, Billy Anderson was up to each and every challenge. Um, I also have to um, give commendation to George Eves Robert. Um, oh, and of course, in any production of St. Joan, um, the character of the Dauphin is very important too. This is um, the... Um, guy who's in charge uh, there in France and um, he has his doubts, but he's a little namby. He's a lot namby pamby actually. And as a result of that, you know, he doesn't want to be swayed by Joan. Um, it, um, really a woman in the army, a woman who dresses like a man, how awful, but she mesmerizes him. She doesn't, he, this was what was great about Billy Anderson. She didn't try to mesmerize him. It wasn't, you should pardon the expression of mind fuck. Not at all. She was just saying what she believed and this was it, you know, and little by little, he, he really showed, uh, Evan Olson was his name, showed the, um, the stages he went through very, very nicely of, uh, going from, uh, who is this woman to, whoa, I think she has a point and, oh, whoa. Um, needless to say, those of us who saw the musical Good Time Charlie, um, <laughs> will recall uh, that this is the story uh, in that musical as well. And um, it, though it's more taken from the Dauphin's point of view, as the title would indicate, but um, it, that show with the score by um, Larry Grossman, Hal Hackney, um didn't quite succeed. And it's really too bad it didn't. But St. Joan is a tough thing to do. And um, even though they had a new slant on it, it's a tough thing to do. And it's a tough play to do. But Jeffrey Horn, Billy Anderson and this company that I am going to follow now to the ends of the earth because they do it so superbly. So um, the next time they're doing something, pay attention. I don't know if they always use Castle Clinton, but it's a wonderful venue and you're right by the um, near the Statue of Liberty and all that. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very pleasant place to see a show. So congratulations to this company. I believe Castle Clinton is the place you go when you want to buy tickets uh, to go to the Statue of Liberty, isn't it? Um, hmm. I, I did see signs saying uh, you can buy tickets here, but I didn't know it was one in the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you got over to Birdland to see Luke Hawkins. So tell us, how's Luke these days? Oh, he's great. He put on an absolutely phenomenal show that was really 
very different from any other cabaret show I've ever seen. It had more dancing than any any cabaret show I've ever seen. And that's not surprising because that's what Luke is most famous for. I first uh, came to know him when he was one of the uh, dancers in that really excellent production of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes that they did at Encores. Uh, and I got to know him then. And he uh, then he started to uh, do this thing where he was tap dancing on the street in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, you would come across him just on a, on a corner of like 47th and 9th and he'd be dancing he'd be one of those boards that those people put down so they can tap dance hmm. on, on on you know i don't know if they're loose sight or whatever they are uh, um and uh he would always get a crowd because it was so, so different from any other kind of street performer you normally see and he's so such a great dancer and very, very, very charming and charismatic. Uh, only uh, two Broadway credits to date. Um, he was a replacement in Xanadu and he was uh, a choreographer uh, and I think also appeared in or, or at least on film in Harry Connick Jr., A Celebration of Cole Porter in 2019. Um, and the story there is that Luke got to know Harry when they were both in The Sting at Paper Mill, hmm. uh, that musical of The Sting. And apparently they really bonded and Harry really liked him. And next thing Luke knew, he was touring with Harry Connick. Uh, as a dancer and uh, and I guess a choreographer uh, and uh, so they really seem to have quite a partnership and that's obviously really good for Luke but he's also Luke uh, I guess his family has a dance school in uh, on the west coast somewhere and, and so he uh, has spent a lot of time there uh, including I, I believe during the pandemic I think that's where he was mostly located um, but now he's he's back here and he's he did this incredible show with all of these amazing guests uh, it opened with a uh, with a, a medley of songs referencing dance like I, it started with I won't dance don't ask me uh, but of course Luke danced anyway and he also sang more in this show than any other time I've heard him before I've, I've um, seen him in a few Scotch Seagull shows and, and other things as a guest performer and in those situations he usually would sing a little bit and then dance but i think he's he's really worked on his voice and it's really improved uh i i assume uh that's why he's singing so much more now uh and not only the quality of his voice but the phrasing and i think maybe he can um uh attribute a lot of that to spending so much time around Harry Connick uh, Jr. because the phrasing was really great and really excellent uh, expert jazz type of phrasing, but very natural sounding. So I, um, I'm delighted that he sings so well. I, I didn't know if he did uh, previously, and now he can really use that uh, to his advantage and I hope he uh, he does a lot more of it. Uh, so he sang several numbers throughout the show, uh, and they had uh, they had a great band of piano, um, bass, and drums, trumpet, trombone, and two other guys doubling on saxes and clarinets. Wow. I'm impressed. This was exactly this was this was bigger than some orchestras you hear on Broadway <laughs> Probably, nowadays. Yeah, right. yeah. 
And this was in the downstairs uh, space at Birdland, which is a little more intimate than the upstairs space. So it was a great sound. And uh, I have to say the show was absolutely packed. And probably one of the reasons it was packed was because listen to these guest artists. He had Eloise Crop, yeah. uh, who was starred in that Dames at Sea revival. Mm-hmm. He had Alex Newell, mm. who sang Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend uh-huh. into Material Girl by yeah. Madonna. Um, he had Max von Essen, one of Luke's mm. best friends, who recreated his performance of Stairway to Paradise from An American in Paris, uh, the Broadway show for which Max had been Tony nominated. And uh, then at the end, Harry Connick came up on stage oh, that's nice. <laughs> and played uh, Angel Eyes with with the band. And it was, as you might imagine, a, a really brilliant capper uh, for the evening. Oh, and then um, Luke, uh, I think I think this came at the end. He sang. Uh, oh, no, maybe it came before that. But not only did they do Angel Eyes, but they also did the other song that I always think of in the same breath as Angel Eyes, One for My Baby. Uh, and Luke sang that. And really, he he sang it so well that I felt like even if he couldn't dance at all, that he could have a career now as a singer. So it was just really uh, an amazing night because it was so different from anything that you normally see in that kind of a venue. And I and he he um, the audience response was phenomenal. And at the end, Luke said something like he said something like, I think I found my new gig <laughs> and I hope. <laughs> I hope he was serious. I hope he did. It was almost like a variety show, but with the, you know, with the host being one of the most talented people on stage. Uh, so I hope he does many more of these. And I, I kind of think that he will be doing just that. All right. So there's Luke Hawkins at Birdland. Um, I, I, it was only, a. um, uh, a single evening, so the performances have passed. But I have a link to Luke's uh, Instagram there, and he seems to update it a lot with uh, his performances in there. So it's yes. one way to one way to stay up with Luke. Yes. Um, so Peter, you got over to the Mint Theater Company to see Chains. So tell us about this production. Well, um, it's very interesting. This is written by a woman, Elizabeth Baker, and it was written uh, many, 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 many moons ago. Um, and it deals with a situation where um, a married couple is um, trying hard to make ends meet. He doesn't make that much money, and um, she's a stay-at-home wife, as wives were in that period of time, and they have to take in borders, and now they have a crisis on two levels. One, one of their borders is leaving. He's a single man. He's decided to seek his fortune in Australia. By the way, they're living in London, Um, so he's going to go there. Whatever happens, happens. You know, and the point is, because he doesn't have a wife, uh, he's not tied down. Uh, he's going to just take a chance. If not, if not now, when? So why not do it? And this really affects the husband. I mean, he really feels trapped, feeling that he'll never be able to do anything like this. And there's a part of him that really wants to. So he decides he's going to do it. He'll send for his wife later. Well, will he? Um, he might, but anybody who saw the musical rags knows that, uh, that doesn't always work out the way everybody mm. expects it to. All right. Very smart idea to then have him go with his wife to her 
relative's house, her mother, her father, et cetera, et cetera. And you can imagine what opinions they have about him just taking up and leaving. Whoa, you know, (laughs) he gets it from all sides there, you know, and I think that's a really smart idea because it really does indicate that once again, when you marry someone, you're also marrying a family uh, because they are going to suddenly have opinions on your life and you are suddenly going to have more bosses in a manner of speaking than you would think you would have. So very, very smart. Uh, what happens at the end is really quite tragic. Um, I'm sure there are those who think that he should stay put, and there are others who think he should uh, um, go off and s- seek his fortune. And he does seem sincere about uh, wanting to send for his wife. I truly believe he believes he's going to send for his wife. And who knows? Maybe he will. And maybe he won't. <laughs> anyway, Jeremy Beck as the husband, terrific. Lachan McCarty as the wife terrific and what we also have is one relative um the wife's sister maggie massey is is the character name olivia gilead plays it to perfection perfection she says now come on go seek your fortune i understand so she is on his side and i have to wonder did philip barry see this play way back when in london because in 1909, because this is very similar to Holiday, hmm. his play, where indeed, if you've seen the movie, let's do, let's use the movie because I, chances are you've had a better chance of seeing the movie than you have seen a revival of this play. And chances are you didn't see the musical version, Happy New Year, which played for a very short period of time, a jukebox musical of Cole Porter tunes back in the 80s at the long uh, mourned Morosco Theater. <laughs> but Holiday... Um, has a situation where um, this young man is about to marry um, a highfalutin uh, society girl. And um, indeed, he says, but before I want to take off for a while and, you know, I'm, I'm going to go. And Catherine Hepburn, uh, who would be his sister-in-law, is on his side. So it's a very similar setup. And I just have to wonder if Philip Barry did uh, see that play. I'm not I'm not asking for a lawsuit or anything like that. I'm just saying I wonder if he did um did it come to him on his own and maybe it did and good luck to everybody but nevertheless um this is a very very effective revival i really um have to say that jen thompson did a beautiful job of directing and john mcdermott did a very very clever set design because remember you have to go to another home um at the start of act two uh the in-laws home and the way he adapted the set from their home to the in-laws home and back again is really, really something worth seeing. So a uh, terrific job with the set as well. So this is a, a very effective um, production by the Mint Theater Company. And um, I, I do recommend it. Okay. So that is Chains at the Mint Theater Company's playing through July 23rd. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Jan, I noticed um, on Twitter the other day that you had posted something about the Mint Theater Company. I thought uh, now might be a good time to just talk about it briefly. Um, I'm waging a campaign uh, to get the Mint Theater to uh, walk its talk. And by that, I mean that during the pandemic, um, when people were responding to the murder of George Floyd, uh, the Mint like many uh, 
artistic groups and corporations and just people expressed its solidarity uh, with the Black Lives Matter um, uh, movement and concern. And it did it by uh, issuing a series of newsletters called Lost Voices in Black History. And it highlighted 12 different Black artists, Black playwrights who had written plays that have been sort of forgotten. And I was expecting, I was hoping that the Mint might start staging some of these plays. I can't think of any play that the Mint has done over its many years that was by a Black or Brown playwright. And its mission, uh, its stated mission, is to promote the work of playwrights who have been neglected, underappreciated over the years. And as we've seen with the whole renaissance of uh, attention to Alice Childress, Mm -hmm. there are playwrights who did not get the kind of very talented, gifted playwrights who did not get the kind of notice that they deserved uh, in the past, that when we see their work now, it's a revelation. And I realize, you know, some people may be saying, well, some of those playwrights that the Mint included in its newsletter, maybe their playwright, maybe their plays aren't very good. Um, and so it's nice to just note them and go on. Again, I repeat, its mission is to shed light on these uh, playwrights, uh, regardless of, of ethnicity, whose work was done in the past and has been forgotten. And some of the plays uh, uh, that the Mint has done over the years, um, some of them have been terrific, and some of them have not been so terrific. It's the historic value that we're we're going for and that we're uh, celebrating. Right. And so I'd really uh, like to see uh, the Mint do some of these plays. And when we were talking before we started recording, Michael asked, perhaps there weren't uh, the rights weren't available. And so while we've you know been recording, I've been doing a little researching on the side. And I said there were a number of these black playwrights who have literary estates. And when I look, there's um, Angelina Weld Grimke, Zora Neale Hurston, Alice Dunbar Nelson, just three writers whose work continues to be published in other medium. And so certainly if those rights are available, uh, the Mint and other theaters can go to uh, those rights holders and say, we'd like to take a look at these plays and we'd like to present them. But, But I think the onus is really particularly on the Mint. Yeah, especially if they wrote that huge essay you mentioned. I, I can't imagine that they would write something like that and then not intend to produce any of these. Uh, why it hasn't happened already, I, I cannot say. Uh, I do know that, um, as you may know, that this production of Chains was supposed to happen right when the pandemic hit. Hmm. Uh, so they probably felt 
mm-hmm. uh, honorably so that they wanted sure. to, you know, to honor that. And I, I, I have not seen it because, um, I uh, had my own show recently and I just had other things coming up that I hadn't scheduled it, but I do understand. Is it correct that it's, uh, that it's very, it's cast with a lot of diversity? Yeah. I think that, that that's the way that um, a lot of people are sort of putting a bandaid. On, yeah, but, on no, the, but I understand completely where you're, that's not the same as producing. No. Things no. by by black writers yeah, and no. and certainly Zora Neale Hurston. I mean, even well, if, yeah. if only that name, you know, is going wow. to be. If an audience sees that, they're going to want to go see that play. Literally, uh, back in the eighties, when Mulebone, her play mm-hmm. Mulebone, was produced on Broadway, I literally went back the next day to see it again. I mean, it was terrific. So I hope that, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, uh, as James suggested earlier, maybe the Mint has a major, uh, major project underway and maybe they'll devote even an entire season uh, to the work of Black playwrights. That would be lovely. And I would be waving the flag. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I really do hope uh, that they do, uh, because I do think the work that, uh, uh, that they do there is important for that reason yes and and they have done a magnificent job uh of uh highlighting showcasing spotlighting you know put in your favorite word female playwrights and um correct and, and so now i'd like to see them push their their mission even further I have uh, found the uh, Mint emails about uh, entitled Lost, Playwright, uh, Lost Plays by Black Playwrights by the Mint Theater. Uh, it's in the show notes in case you want to uh, check that out yourself. And uh, it seems like it's just a, a roadmap to what they should do for future seasons. <laughs> so Sounds like it to me. <laughs> yeah. So, Michael, uh, to wrap up this morning's uh, reviews, um, you got over to see Beanie Feldstein in Funny Girl, the elusive Beanie Feldstein. So how was it? Well, it was an interesting experience to me because I I would say in a nutshell, she she was far better than I thought she would be just based on what little clips I had seen. Um, uh, But that doesn't mean that I think that there's they needed to mount a Broadway revival of funny girl for her. Uh, so that's, that's where I stand. Uh, she, I think she's just basically miscast as many, many other people have said. Um, she, I, I just don't, I just don't think her physical type is right for it. And it's not exactly because of the weight. I can't, I can't really explain it anymore she just doesn't seem right for the role um i should mention that when i did that production of funny girl many years ago when i was a chorus member <laughs> uh when we did it on staten island um that the lead and in that case was also a a plus size person and everybody seemed to love her in the show because she just seemed better to fit the role better i i, I it's hard to to be more specific about it uh beanie um to me when she sings loudly when she belts loudly her voice has a sort of a strident uh and yet thin quality without a lot of depth to it and it's an unpleasant sound for me it reminds me of um a lot of those little girls you see you hear singing annie 
uh-huh. with that 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 very kind of sharp, strident quality uh, that I personally do not respond to. But I have to say, um, when Beanie uh, sang softly, as in the song People and also Who Are You Now, she really sounded quite lovely. Uh, and you could just feel the audience responding uh, to those numbers, especially. Uh, although I have to say, um, when I when I went back, it seemed like the theater was packed and everyone just loved everything about her and the show. Uh, so uh, so although we critics uh, <laughs> may um, may not have been entirely convinced by her performance, uh, it does seem that there are a lot of fans there. Maybe it's just partly the nature of the the show and the role, uh, you know, that. Uh, Cinderella story, the underdog making good. Um, but for whatever reason, the, the response was really, really great. Michael, um, yeah. Was there a sign in the lobby that said at this performance, the role usually <laughs> played by Julie Benko will be played by Beanie <laughs> Feldstein? No, but it's 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 funny you say that we uh, we got there kind of late um, and you know how lobbies are right before a show. It was so hectic and so crowded. I, I looked I tried to look, but I didn't see any sign. Uh, so I assumed that we were going to see Beanie. But also, that's one of the theaters that, for whatever reason, they have airport-style security. Uh, and so you have to deal with that. And that's a distraction, too. And and I I don't think I would have known if there was a sign. Uh, but there also wasn't, uh, when I got in the theater, there wasn't that, that full-page insert that was there when Julie Benko uh, did the show. So I... I you know, so at that point, I thought, well, I guess it's going to be Beanie who's going to walk on and say hello, gorgeous. And it was. Um, How would so, you have felt if indeed it was Julie Benko? Well, I, again, I, I had seen her and loved her. Uh, so I I didn't need to see her again. Okay. Uh, and I just really wanted to see okay. Beanie for the historical record. OK. And I'm glad that I did because it, it uh, I learned a lot about expectations and, you know, but but it, it's hard for me to describe it she she just she really was not bad but it, it it really did seem like something you would see from the most talented person in her high school okay um, all right but who did you like better i i like julie better okay i like julie better i did know. too yeah. yeah beanie also does that thing uh she does that cackling thing oh yeah that she did in hello dolly and yeah. i cannot stand that yeah yeah, uh, incredible. She only did it a couple of times in Funny Girl. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say, but it still annoyed me. Mm. And another annoying thing is yeah. that uh, this this show really begs for applause. They have Jared Grimes, who's so talented that he doesn't need anyone's help. You know, he really doesn't need anyone's help. But he comes out and he does that tap solo before Cornet Man. That's the first time we really see him tap. And he comes out and he starts tapping and he's like. How y'all doing? Mm-hmm. And the audience goes, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I can't hear you. How yeah. you all doing? Yeah. And, you know, then everyone screams. And I like I, yeah. I, I, I yeah. cannot yeah. stand that. I hate that, too. Yeah. yeah. So I wish they would take that out because he really doesn't need it. Mm-hmm. And then Harvey Firestein, Firestein, I always have to think twice before I pronounce his name. His rewrite of that final scene of Act One is so ridiculous that I think he should just admit that it's so terrible and go back and do it again because it doesn't make any sense and it just 
really is horrendous. Uh, and for that matter, his rewrite of the first scene of Act Two is not that great either. And many of his other rewrites of the show are not not an improvement, but rather uh, uh, made things worse as far as the original book. So if if uh, if this was the same production and they had just used all the original material without the rewrites, it would have been considerably better. But unfortunately, he seems to be the go-to person for this kind of thing now. And I just don't really like his work uh, when he rewrites old shows. So um, that's my take on Funny Girl. I'm, I'm really glad. I, I, I thank the press office for getting me back in again to see mm. Beanie because I would not have wanted Mm. I had wanted to miss it. Uh, mm. I feel like I would have not have been part of the conversation mm-hmm. <laughs> going mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio plays us, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play. Anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you'll get Broad Drive Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, for Janet, for me can be found on the show notes at broaddriveradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked today, talked about today, including that appearance by Jan Simpson in <laughs> All the Moving Parts. So uh, check that out. All right. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? I gave six titles of songs and I asked what they had in common. And the answer was they all mentioned people who don't appear in the show. Hmm. Cabaret mentions Elsie. The Worst Pies in London mentions Mrs. Mooney. They're playing our song, Leon, Colored Lights, Sam, Fred, and Joey, and possibly Pete, um, all of uh, the boyfriends of Angel, the Les Minnelli uh, part. The Big Dollhouse, Lipschitz and Strauss. And my unfortunate erection, Marigold Corny Bear. Mike Meany was the first to get it, followed by Brigadood, Tony Janicki, and Deb Popple. Credit also goes to Paul Witte, who noticed that each references a certain time of day, and Joss Israel, who perceived that each song asks a rhetorical question, which nobody can deny. This week's question really is a trivia question as opposed to a brain teaser. So, the song that ends Act Two in a famous musical used to open. Act two, when the show began its tryout. What's the show? What's the song? Hmm. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? We are tributing James Rado, who died this week, and he was the last of the uh, creative team of hair uh, to leave us. Jerome Ragney had died in 1991 and Galt McDermott uh, in 2018. But uh, James Rado, who I, I guess everyone called him Jim, but his professional name was James Rado, uh, just just died this past week. And, and I'm sure I don't have to convince anyone uh, of what an epic making event hair was. It just really was a, a game changer. Um, in the theater and Broadway in particular, off-Broadway, Broadway. Uh, so, uh, uh, and I, I think it's going to continue to be done uh, forever uh, because, mostly because the quality of the music uh, and some of the lyrics is so excellent, but it's it's also 
such a, a time capsule, but in a, a really in a way that really lasts. And I, I don't, I, I feel like I don't even need to say anymore because I think very few people would disagree with me on that. Uh, hair is for the ages. So our opening number, our opener for the podcast was Jim Rado himself singing "Where Do I Go" from the original Broadway cast of Hair. Uh, I just recently read, I think, in one of the obits uh, for Mr. Rado that he, uh, the reason he didn't appear as Claude in the off-Broadway uh, production of Hair down at the Public Theater is that uh, I think it was Joe Papp who felt he was too old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, he, he didn't uh, appear in there. But then when, when the show moved to Broadway, uh, Tom O'Horgan, uh, I guess, felt differently. And, and so he got to play that role. And Jerome Ragney uh, was also uh, was, uh, was in the show as Berger. Uh, so they, they got to play the leads on Broadway. And that is our opener. And then for the closer, there are so many recordings of hair. But I chose um, Flesh Failures slash Let the Sunshine in, the finale, uh, from the cast album of the 2005 Actors Fund Benefit Concert uh, of Hair. Uh, so you will hear Norm Lewis, our friend Norm Lewis, who's appeared on our podcast uh, at the top of this track. And that's a really good recording of Hair. If you are not familiar with it, you really might want to get your hands on it. Um, I, 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 think, I think Hair is, a, is an absolute classic and in an immortal piece that will always be with us. And so we leave you with that. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier, Peter Felicia and Jan Simpson, my name is James Marino. And thank you for listening to Broadway videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Proudly in our winter coats, wearing smells from laboratories, facing a dying nation of moving paper fantasy, listening for the new tone lies with supreme visions of lonely tunes somewhere. Inside something there is a rush of greatness who knows what stands in front of our lives. I fashion my future on films and space. Silence tells me.